Matthew begins his gospel with a long list of names. And it's a list that you might be tempted to just skip over to move more quickly to the story of Jesus' birth. But the birth story really begins with the list of names. And it's a list which includes, among other things, sexual scandal and the stories of five faithful women. Welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. I am Greg Hall, and you have found your way to episode 88. It's part two of two (laughs) of what we're calling a royal genogram. We have just started walking our way through the book of Matthew, and thanks for joining me. These episodes are part of a larger study that I put together when I was a pastor, and the resources for either self-study or small group engagement, they're all available at RethinkingScripture.com. Near the top of the page, you just look for the Studies tab, and it's all there. And it's all free. So let's just dive in. In the last episode, I suggested that what we have in the first 17 verses of Matthew, it's more of a genogram than a genealogy. And genogram, that might be a new term for you. My wife introduced me to the concept, and it's a genealogy, but it's more than that. It includes more than just the names of the people that came before, but it also includes things like major events, cultural factors that played into the family, medical conditions of the people, any traumas or addictions or relationship dynamics. And it also considered the role that people played within the family. And I may not have emphasized it enough when talking about it last time, but a genogram also includes the successes that people had. It asks the question, what were they good at? What awards did they win during their lifetime? So it's not just the dysfunction in a family's history that's important to understand. It is just as important to understand all the good things that have helped shape any given family. All of that is included in a genogram. And I think the list at the beginning of Matthew includes more than just names as well. Why do I think that? Well, the author invites us to consider Jesus' family genogram by naming a series of women in his list. And by doing so, Matthew invites us to consider not just the names, but the stories associated with each of these women. And when we do, many different aspects of the family come into focus. And before we get into that, let's just talk about bookends. Um, I wanted to point out how the author, Matthew, frames these first 17 verses. So he begins in chapter 1, verse 1, with the book of the Genesis of Jesus, And then he mentions Messiah or Christ, and then David, and then Abraham. So it goes Jesus, David, Abraham. And as an author, he's using a literary device to let his readers know where he's going. And then he lists a bunch of names in verses 2 through 16. And at the end of that list, he bookends the information from the first verse in reverse order. So, in the beginning, in verse 1, he mentions Jesus, David, 
and then Abraham. And in verse 17, he mentions Abraham, then David, then Messiah. And interestingly, he's added the deportation to Babylon in his conclusion. And what's that doing there? Well, when you see something like that, something unexpected, it's the author inviting you to pay attention. And it's not by chance that the deportation to Babylon snuck into Matthew's conclusion. If Matthew wanted it to be a nice, neat bookend to this portion of his writing, he would have mirrored it exactly. So what he's doing is he's drawing the reader's attention to the differences. And he wants you to ask the question, why is the deportation included inside a royal genogram? And the answer to that is fascinating, and I'll address it near the end of today's episode. So bookends. I also want to just mention a little bit more about Jesus's name. I talked about this in the last episode. In English, we think Mary and Joseph gave their baby the name Jesus, but that's not exactly correct. The New Testament tells us that Mary and Joseph were given the name Joshua. Uh, The New Testament records it as Jesus. Uh, That's the Greek version of Joshua. In the Hebrew, it would have been either Yehoshua or maybe the shorter version, Yeshua. And this is all important because Joshua was an Old Testament character directly associated with the conquest of the Promised Land. And the first battle of the conquest was a city named Jericho. We know this, especially if we grew up in the church. We know this because Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Uh, We find that in Joshua chapter 2. And it's in that story that we are introduced to a woman by the name of Rahab. And she was a prostitute, and she was the one that hid the spies that Joshua sent in to view the land. Now, let me ask you a question. Isn't it interesting that the new Joshua, the man we know as Jesus, his genogram includes this same Rahab character? Matthew, as an author, is inviting us to pay attention. And he is saying that if we understand the storyline of the Old Testament accounts, we will better understand what it was that Jesus, or Maybe I should say Joshua, what he came to accomplish. In the last episode, we began to talk about the five women that Matthew includes in this list of names. And just remember, my premise is that this is an exciting genogram that includes much more than a normal genealogy would ever include. Matthew mentions the women to prompt us to remember their stories. And it reminded me that my grandma on my dad's side of the family, she did a lot of work with our family tree. And I remember (laughs) that she discovered that somewhere up the line, there was a hall in England, where we all came from, who stole a horse. (laughs) She found this out. 
And she told us that he was convicted for this crime and eventually hung for his transgression. So, just to put this in perspective, for a time at least, people in my family were probably thought of as a bunch of no-good horse thieves. Now, while I find this interesting, it's a story that I would probably skip over if I was trying to present myself in the best of light. I mean, I probably wouldn't choose to include this on my social media feed if I was running for president. But here in Matthew, the author is arguing for Jesus's right to be the king. And he purposefully picks some pretty provocative people in Jesus's line. Who are they? Well, last time we talked about Tamar, who was a woman who dressed up like a prostitute She concealed her identity in that process and slept with her father-in-law to produce an heir. And you'll have to go back and listen to the last episode if you missed it. (laughs) But let's not get distracted by what we would consider a crazy Jerry Springer type story and miss how Matthew's readers would have understood it. Tamar's actions show that she was a righteous woman of faith. And it was the men in that story, Judah and his sons, who were wicked. And they were pursuing their own plan instead of God's plan. Oh yeah, and let's just state that there was sexual scandal surrounding the continuation of Jesus' line. That's going to become a theme in this genogram. So Tamar, right there in verse 3. And then we just skip down two short verses to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. So we've got two women in verse 5. And again, I have to ask the question, why would you bring Rahab into this genealogy? Well, in the Old Testament, we find her story back in the opening chapters of the book of Joshua. And what was Rahab's profession? Well, she was a prostitute. She didn't just dress up like one, like Tamar. She actually was one. And you may not have asked this question before. Is she Jewish? Well, of course not. She's Canaanite. She's in the cursed city of Jericho. And it's not just that that one city was cursed. The Canaanites were a race of people that were cursed through the teachings of Noah. And the law of Moses condemned them to death. So here's a woman under a curse, and her occupation is an abomination. But (laughs) she has faith. She has heard about what God has done through his people. And because of her faith, she enters into a covenant with two spies. So, at least in Rahab's case, how do you overcome the curse of the law? You overcome it by entering into a covenant of peace through faith. And it's Matthew's list of names that suggests that Rahab makes the phenomenal transition from being a Canaanite prostitute to marrying into the royal family of Judah. She has nothing except faith on her side. 
And she is accepted into the royal line of David. And let me just suggest that in a way, maybe in that way, Rahab is a picture of all of us. And then the list suggests that Rahab gives birth to Boaz. And this reference invites us back to the book of Ruth. And it's there where we learn how Boaz agreed to marry a foreign woman from Moab. Ruth, this woman, was descended from a people who were identified as impure. And that's because Ruth is descended from Lot, who was Abraham's brother. And let me just ask you a question, because you may not know the connection there. Is there any sexual scandal in that story? Well, sure there is. The Moabite people trace their whole line back to when Lot's daughters, not his daughter-in-laws like Tamar, but his actual daughters slept with him to produce heirs. That's why her people were under the curse. That's Ruth's heritage. So let me just ask this question, because you might not have ever thought of it this way before. Why do you think Boaz was able to see the beauty in a foreign woman from Moab? Well, let me suggest to you that maybe a part of that answer is found in the relationship he had to his godly mother, who, by the way, also happened to be an outsider from the wrong race. Boaz grew up knowing that faith can cross any ethnic divisions that we might think are impassable. The list continues. Jesse was the father of David the king. And then it says in the NASB, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, depending on your English translation, the name Bathsheba might be included or it might not. In the original Greek, Bathsheba is alluded to in this verse, but not specifically mentioned. And I think it's unfortunate that some of our English translations put her name into the text. Matthew gestures to her by calling her, literally, the her of Uriah. Uriah was her husband. And (laughs) again, let me just ask a question. Do we think that Matthew forgot Bathsheba's name? That's not even a possibility. But he chose not to include it, I think, for a reason. And that should prompt you to ask the question, why does Matthew refer to Bathsheba only by mentioning her husband? Why wouldn't he just name her? He's mentioned all of these other women who weren't Jewish. Bathsheba is at least Jewish, and she doesn't get mentioned by name. And I think the answer is in the heritage of her husband. Uriah, do we know, was he Jewish? No. Uriah was a Hittite. He was a Gentile man, and he had married a Jewish woman. So he came into faith in God, and then he joined the Jewish nation through marriage. He likely took on a new name at that time because his name means the Lord is my light. He married into this clan, and likely nobody followed him from the tribe of the Hittites. So what that means is that Uriah has no heir. 
He is alone in his conversion into the Jewish faith. And if he doesn't produce an heir, his name will be cut off with his death. So (laughs) with that, let me just ask the question, is there any sexual scandal involved in the story of Uriah and Bathsheba and King David? (laughs) Well, of course there is. This is just another season of the Jerry Springer Show. If you remember, David has Uriah killed in battle so he can cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. And let's remember what has happened to Uriah's name when he is killed in battle. So, again, let's back away from this list of names for a second. We thought it was just a genealogy. Pretty straightforward. Pretty factual. But what Matthew is doing is he's stylizing this genealogy by adding women's stories into it to remind the people of Jesus' day how we got to Jesus, how faith works in the line of Jesus. And that prompts the question, why would Matthew include the name of a dead husband instead of the wife in a genealogy that normally wouldn't include women in the first place. Do you see how far removed that is from establishing a royal succession for Jesus? Just know that Matthew has a purpose for all of this. So we've talked about four women, four of the five in Matthew's genogram, but there's a fifth woman. It's Mary, and she is the mother of Jesus, this Messiah character. And let me just ask the question, what is it that all of these women's stories have in common with Mary's story? So we've talked about the sexual scandal in Tamar's story. Is there any sexual scandal in Rahab's story? Well, of course there is. Her profession was surrounded by it. And how about Ruth? While Ruth was a righteous woman, her heritage was born of incest, and she was considered unclean religiously by those connections. And then there was Bathsheba. Well, there's sexual scandal surrounding her story as well. And then the fifth woman is Mary. Let me just ask, are there any questions regarding Mary's sexual behavior for those that heard her story. Now, as a reader, we are told the real cause of her pregnancy, so we know that. But for someone who is just hanging around Mary in this story as it happened, would there have been any question marks in their head about what's going on? When the angel comes to Mary and she agrees to be used in this role— What Mary is doing is she's accepting the destiny of being regarded as a woman of fornication. The Pharisees bring this up later on in Jesus's ministry by saying we were not born of fornication, suggesting that this story is still following Jesus late into his adulthood. But in real time, how many people are going to really believe the story of the virgin birth? I mean, It took a visit from some angels for Joseph to get his mind around it. And I'm guessing 
questions surrounded Mary and her story her whole life. So Matthew, in setting up the birth story, is using these other stories, the ones in the first 17 verses, to legitimize Mary's story that directly follows in verse 18, the the birth story. So why is this genealogy, this genogram, lifting up women? It was through the woman that the seed was originally promised. And that line progresses through stories that have question marks in and all the way through them. And let's remember, Matthew was writing his gospel not to just the Jewish people, but to the whole world. If we just skip to the end of the gospel, chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Go make disciples of all the nations. That is the concluding thought in Matthew's gospel at the end. And here at the beginning of his gospel, he is setting up a genogram, a genealogy, that is not just for the Jewish people. He is emphasizing that Jesus' line was influenced by people of all nations. And his message in the way he does this is that your gender doesn't matter because he includes women. Your race doesn't matter because he includes several from outside the Israelite line, and your past doesn't matter. And that's a beautiful message. I hope you can see how much we miss when we begin our Christmas readings in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. We miss the whole context and the whole premise that Matthew has carefully set up for his readers. Well, I hope this has been eye-opening for some of you. I'm guessing you've likely never read through Matthew's genealogy quite like this before. And let me just say, I got most of this from a professor in my doctoral program, Dr. Warren Gage. And he was a guest back on episodes 26 and 27. I brought him in to finish up our study of the book of John. And it's Dr. Gage who has helped me see the beginning of Matthew with a brand new set of eyes. And I'll go ahead and put some links in the show notes uh, to his ministry. It's called Watermark Gospel. He is creating animated short videos, so similar to what you might see at the Bible Project. He's creating those that show how the New Testament story of Jesus has watermarked Old Testament stories all through it. So I just want to say thank you once again to Dr. Gage just for his perspective and the way he is able to link different things in Scripture back to the Old Testament. It's amazing. And I may have saved the best for last here. I mentioned earlier in this episode that Matthew includes the deportation to Babylon in the genogram. He mentions it in verses 11 and 12, right in the middle, and again, at the end in verse 17. And it begs the question, why would Matthew include the exile to Babylon 
in a genealogy. I mean, it was an important event, not arguing that at all, but it really has nothing to do with establishing Jesus's line to the throne. And if that's all this is, the deportation to Babylon would never have been included. But this is a genogram. And Matthew uses the deportation for a completely different reason. And let me just start by saying this. In modern day, we want these biblical genealogies to be 100% accurate. It's almost like we need them to be. And that's because we surmise that for the biblical text to be inerrant, something we've always been told that it is, without error, that these genealogies, they can't skip any names or have any inaccuracies of fact within them because uh, an inaccuracy of fact would cause something to be in error. But that is our modern definition of inerrant that we're trying to support by going back and reading an ancient text. It will become clear by the end of this episode, if it hasn't already, that Matthew has stylized his genealogy And let me just tell you, it is not a complete genealogy. And he did that on purpose. Even though in verse 17, it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. All the generations. He says that, so we should be assuming that he means all there, right? But Matthew is stylizing this list of names. It's not complete on purpose, and he's using it not to give us a complete list, but he's using it to present the history of Israel in preparation for saying who Jesus is. So let's just back away from this a little and look at the structure. We've got Abraham starting everything off in verse 17. And then David is mentioned. David is the start of the kingly line that leads to Jesus. That's important. Then the deportation to Babylon is mentioned. Why is that? Well, let me just suggest it's important because it's the deportation that ended the progression of kings in Israel. There were no Jewish kings in Babylon. And when they came back from Babylon into the Promised Land, they were an occupied nation. They didn't continue having kings again. So the deportation to Babylon makes a nice partition in the nation's history, and it's part of the reason Matthew mentions it. And then what Matthew does is mentions the Christ, who is the fulfillment of this kingly idea. So let's talk about the 14, 14, and 14 generations in these three segments that Matthew produces. That seems really nice and neat if it represented the complete list of the people. But what are the odds? And this is where you might be tempted to defend your modern definition of inerrant. Well, Greg... What do you mean by what are the odds? Don't you believe what the text says, that it was 14 generations in each of these segments? Well, (laughs) let's talk about it for a minute. 
the first set of 14 that Matthew mentions from Abraham to David, that represents roughly about a thousand years, a thousand years. But then we get to David to Babylon, the second set of 14 generations. And let me just ask you the question that you've maybe never asked yourself. What amount of time does that represent? Would it surprise you if I said that from David to Babylon represents approximately 400 years? So we've got 1,000 years in the first 14 generations, and we have 400 years in the second set of 14 generations. So what would explain such a dramatic change in time? And you might say, well, maybe people's lifespan changed dramatically. That would explain it, right? But realistically, that would be a very dramatic change in people's lifespans. To cut off 600 years within a span of 14 generations. And if that's not it, if it's not that people's lifespans are dramatically changing, let me just suggest that it could be that not all the generations are included in Matthew's list on purpose. So hang with me. Let's keep going here. If it were a change in life expectancy, what you would expect to see is a similar trend in the last set of 14 generations. In other words, you would expect it to go from 1,000 years to 400 years to something like maybe 250 or 300 years. But from Babylon to Messiah, the last set of 14 generations, it hops back up to 500 years, which is 100 years longer than the middle set and about half of the first set. And let me just suggest the original readers would have understood this better than we do. They would have known that Matthew isn't trying to give us a complete list of the generations. Rather, what they would have seen is the history lesson that he is giving of this group of people. Well, what do I mean by that? Let's back away from this a little bit again, and let me walk you through kind of a quick history of each of these three sets of 14 generations. Let's start with Abraham to David. Again, about a thousand years. This is the whole history of Israel from its inception with Abraham to the high watermark of Israel's history with David. And let's just review what happened. In the beginning of this story, Abraham, he is in Ur of the Chaldees. Do you know where that is? Well, if you follow the Fertile Crescent from Israel to the east, it's at the other end of the Fertile Crescent. So Abraham is called at the beginning of this story from the east. And God says, go to the land which I will show you. And he follows God's prompt, and he ends up in the land of Israel. But he doesn't get the whole land. In fact, his people end up going down to Egypt, where they are eventually enslaved in bondage. Another major character that comes out of this thousand years of history is Moses. And what is it that Moses does? Moses' story is a story of bringing people out of slavery and to the cusp of the promised land. Following Moses in the progression, we have Joshua. What's Joshua's role? Joshua took over after Moses and brought the people into the land that was promised to Abraham. 
They conquer large portions of the land and set it up as their home. Then the history goes through the judges, and then the kings come. And eventually this David character comes on the scene, and the throne is given to Israel. And David moves the ark to Jerusalem, and the temple is commissioned. That's what David does. And let me just suggest, and this is not just me, this is, you know, commentaries and theological studies would suggest that the kingdom of David is the high watermark of Israel's history. I mean, he's followed by Solomon, who was wise and expanded the kingdom, but Solomon had his issues. It was when David brought the ark into Jerusalem and commissioned the temple to be built. That was the high watermark. And then what happened? Well, the David and Bathsheba story happened. And everything started going downhill from there. So from Abraham to David, about a thousand years. Matthew represents it as the first set of 14 generations. Then let's talk about what happened from David to Babylon and the second set of 14. Remember, this represents about 400 years total, so it's not as long, but it begins, I'm going to suggest to you, with David's sin with Bathsheba. That starts a downward cycle, and everything that came together in the first cycle is undone in this second cycle of 14 generations presented by Matthew. And why would I say that? It's because in The David to Babylon period of time, that's where we have the temple destroyed and the ark taken out of the city. So when the temple is destroyed and the ark is removed from Jerusalem, the work of David is undone. Do you see that happening? And then the city is destroyed and is again, it's overrun with the uncircumcised nations that surrounded it. So When the city is destroyed and overrun again, the work of Joshua is undone. Then the people are carried away into slavery. So whose work is being undone when the people are taken into slavery? Now, it's in Babylon this time, but it's gesturing to the work of Moses being undone because Moses was the one that brought them out of slavery. They're deported into Babylon And where is Babylon? It's in the east. And whose work is undone when they go back to the east? Well, Abraham's work is undone. It's his trip from Ur of the Chaldees that is reversed. So this people group no longer has a temple, no longer has a city or a land, and they are in slavery in the east. Matthew is telling us that all that history in the first 14 generations is undone in this second set of 14 generations. And he suggests that it's not Solomon as the apex of this story, but it's David. It's something having to do with David's story that turns the tide. And that has to be the story of Bathsheba, the turning point in the history of Israel. So, Babylon to Messiah is the third set of 14 generations. Again, represents about 500 years. And it's this section with the Messiah mentioned that doesn't have a high water mark like David. It just continues to go up. With Christ, let me just ask, is there any sin 
like that of David? No, there's no sin like David's sin. So when Christ takes the throne, the trajectory continues to go up. And that's not just a theological presupposition. It's literal as well. Instead of a small piece of land, what is Christ's kingdom? Christ is given the whole world. Matthew highlights that at the end of his gospel. It's this Christ character that Matthew is introducing that will build a universal temple that will be the new heavens and the new earth. And it's his kingdom that always advances. Do you see that Matthew is giving us an entire understanding of the history of the world? (laughs) And that Christ is inheriting the nations. And that you, today, listening to this story, that you are his royal seed. Let me just finish with this question. If I'm an author, and I choose to give my readers a genealogy, But I don't intend for it to be a complete list of everyone. But what I'm really doing is I have a whole different reason that I'm including this genealogy. Let's say I want to tell the story of a people group, and I want to frame it in this way inside of a genealogical list. If that's my intent as the author, is it okay that it's not a complete record? It's not only okay... But if we're going to truly understand the meaning of the text, we have to understand it that way. Well, that's all I got for today's episode. We've made it through the list of names at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And I hope you agree that it's really much more of a genogram than a genealogy. Matthew has organized the story of the new Joshua into a nice little history lesson. It's a history lesson that includes people from all over the world. It includes various types of scandals along the way, but it concludes with a hope. For the whole world. In the next episode, we will cover the entirety of the birth story. So picking up in the last part of chapter one and all of chapter two. And I can't wait to jump into it with you. And before we go, let me just ask, did you find today's topic interesting? Would you like to supplement these episodes that you're listening to with a deeper study of the biblical text? If so, Again, just head over to RethinkingScripture.com, click on the Studies tab near the top of the page, and explore all of the free resources I have for the book of Matthew. Oh, and while you're at it, would you consider letting someone else know what you've discovered on the Rethinking Scripture podcast? Podcast.